This is Robert Capuccio. Welcome to the Self-Help Antidote, a weekly dose of reason, perspective, and insight, where we challenge conventional thinking and explore authentic strategies and insights around personal transformation. Our commitment to you is to bring you some of the world's leading experts in the domains of fitness, wellness, coaching, and behavior change, separating fact from fallacy. Welcome back to another episode of Roll with the Punches and the Self-Help Antidote. Tiffany Cook, how are you? Oh, Bobby Cappuccio, I am fabulous. Thanks for asking. Well, I care. And you know what I really appreciate about our relationship, me and you? What? Tell me. How playful we are with one another. We are light, playful, and we just get each other. I'm not saying like get each other where we can finish each other's sentences (laughs) at a bar because those people are freaking nauseating and stop it. I definitely can't finish your sentences because your sentences are fucking super smart. (laughs) No, well, what she's trying to say is you talk way too much and your (laughs) sentences are super long and I haven't been training at the intensity where I'm even physically capable to attempt to finish one of those sentences. So luckily my job here today, 50% of it anyway, is talking or doing 50% of the talking or uh, probably a little bit more than that. To be fair, everyone's like, Oh, Jace, you kind of anyway, but that's not the point. We're not here to talk about how much I talk. We're here to talk about playfulness. And how play not only brings me and Tiffany closer together, but it brings people in general closer together. So this is an interesting story. Christmas Eve, 1914, World War I on the Western Front. There's... Up until that point, no war had ever been fought on that scale and that level of brutality with the death toll and the technology feeding the war machine. It was it was absolute hell on earth. And on Christmas Eve, early in the day, the fighting just seemed to die down just a little bit. And there was an element of quiet, which was normally not present on the Western Front. And from the German trenches, they could hear something. They weren't really sure what it is they were hearing. Actually, no, wait, it was the it was, the British could hear something coming from the German trenches. I have my trenches backwards. And they, they listened in closely because this could be quite important. And what they started to hear was caroling. There were Christmas carols being sung in the trenches. And they were celebrating. So they started singing as well. And the Germans were able to pick up the sound of the British and a few of the French caroling. And so they started to carol back. And so then they started almost taking turns with different choruses. And at one point, they were singing the same Christmas carol at the same pace at the same exact time. And then the Germans put up a sign written in in English you know, shoot, we know, shoot, and started to step out of the trenches and start to walk into a place in the battlefield that was named no man's land. And quite cautiously and suspiciously, the British soldiers started to step out of their trenches and they actually met each other in the middle and they started to exchange food. They started to converse They started to wish each other happy holidays and it began to escalate later on that day. They were exchanging information. And if they were just so happened to survive the war, they were making plans to meet one another and each other's families. They got to know each other on a first name basis. And then they started of all things, a football match right there in the middle of the battlefield. And it, it never turned contentious. It was very competitive and, they would laugh constantly. It didn't even matter who won. I, I, I think, I think, I don't know who won. I don't want to say it, but anyway, it was a very close match. And what happened was the commanding officers from both sides had to come down to the battlefield and threaten all of them with court martial and execution. If they did not go back to killing one another immediately and that's the power of human connection and play because because play it gets us to understand yeah this is an absolute true story oh my god 
How do you um, know this? I want to interrupt for a second and go, I, you are like the human audible. You're like, you know how on audible you can get the summary <laughs> books and you can order a summary book so you don't have to read the whole book? You're like my human audible where I can go into the Bobby file and go, what do I learn, want to learn about and just pull out a summary of anything? You are brilliant. I don't know where it comes from. Tiffany, I feel a little bit like you're flirting. To be fair. <laughs> That's a different book summary altogether, that one. <laughs> I'm flattered, but uh, no, it's written in so many different books. Mm-hmm. And if you go to Google, like right now, as you're listening to this, unless you're driving, then please don't do this. <laughs> Just go to Google and type in Christmas Eve 1914, Western Front, World War One, and there'll be multiple sources where you can access this story and it's beautiful and it shows what happens when you get together and you play another great book on play is written by the great Stuart Brown. Stuart Brown is probably one of the leading researchers in the world on play and, and why mammals have play as what he considers a basic human emotion. It's right there with love, joy, fear, anger, and any human emotion that we have has one thing in common. It is critical for our survival. So he went into the Texas penal system and he started interviewing um, violent criminals who had been in and out of the prison system their entire life. Many of them will stay there for the remainder of their life. And the only one common denominator that everybody he interviewed had was that they were due to circumstances denied play Mm. when they were children, denied play with each other because play is at the heart of socialization. It's at the heart of collaborative creation. So it's where your imaginations synergize. It's when you get to know each other in a way that you normally wouldn't get to know each other. And you prepare yourself as children for real world scenarios because you're testing different scenarios and how you would engage and interact and respond to those scenarios when the stakes are not high. They're not life threatening. You're not you're not literally going to have your marriage fall apart if you're playing house. You know, you're not literally going to you're not going to lose the house. And, you know, uh, who gets the car and you know who gets the kids on this particular weekend? But you get to step into adult situations imaginatively and child situations that are critical for you at that age. So so play, I think, is the seed of human connection, collaboration, and on a personal level, learning and development. And, yeah, emotional regulation. You remind me of, I think I've talked about him before to you. I had a guy called Rick Stevens. He was a film producer. did some really big work, I believe, and then he moved into it doing a project called the 5,000-Day Project, um, and he interviewed children. I can't remember what age upwards. It was yes, young, I remember year. this. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. did I send – do I ever send – if I didn't, I will send you the videos. He sent me three videos of these children, and, you know, this, he tells me this story about this young boy, and he comes into the room crying, and he said – and he's like, oh, what's wrong? And he goes – my the the girl I was going to marry is not going to marry me anymore. She doesn't love me anymore. And he goes, well, "How do you know?" And he goes, "Because she pushed me in the chest and said, I don't love you. We're not, I'm not going to marry you anymore.'" And he was like, "Oh, right. telltale sign of a crush, right there." Yeah, right. And but this this child, like, he was sad and he was talking about his feelings and he was, you know. And then he goes about ten minutes later, he goes, "Oh, but there's this other girl." But he talks about that, like listening to that process. I realized how. Kids are, I mean, that's just working out how to deal with real life. They're real Mm -hmm. emotions, but we as adults go, oh, that's cute. It's not real. Don't worry about it. She'll be right, you know, and and you've got a I hate that shit because (laughs) if you've been a kid for five minutes, you know that those emotions are not only real, but they're unbridled. Mm. They're unburdened with, you know, being an adult and societal expectations, you not only feel real emotions, you feel them so deeply. Like I remember the first crush I ever had 
when I was a kid and I went to her door with a teddy bear heart. It was a teddy bear encased inside of a plastic heart. And she threw it on the ground and stepped on it and crushed it in front of me. And like her dad came out. She doesn't want to talk to you. Never come here again. And I remember how absolutely devastated I was. One, I think, because I like I saved up to buy that thing. I had no money. Um, th- thanks for that. Like a, a no thank you would have sufficed. Uh, but, and and then also I was you know, I didn't have very many friends as a kid. I had a couple. And I wasn't courageous enough to go myself. So they were waiting in the stairwell. So they got to hear all of that. And then, you know, the job of your mates at that point is to laugh and hang shit on you as much as they possibly can. So I'm there walking down the street, like holding uh, my broken plastic heart and tending to my literal broken heart. And just just they are having the time of their life. They think it's hilarious. You feel those deep feelings and adults would minimize it. Oh, like like if if my parents, well, my, my parents oh. are not they, growing up, my adopted parents and step parents, they're, they're not a good marker for normalcy. They were the horrific parents, to say the least. But they would get angry at me if they caught me having any type of feeling towards someone. It's like, what do you know? This is not the real world. You're just a child. Those feelings don't exist. And it's like, really? Because looking back, wow, that was, that was some pure shit. We felt as kids, whether, whether we felt we were treated unfairly or whether we had fallen in love, we had a crush, which which was pretty easy. Like this kid, 10 minutes later, he's off to the, yeah, he's going to be trouble when he gets older. But anyway, um, it, it, I, I just hate that. I denied myself of, of, of feeling emotions from, now I'm thinking about it, from a from a super young age. Like from as, from as young as I remember, I, I remember just be, tr- being stoic and not having, not showing and really just suppressing to the point where I just didn't really have emotional reactions. It was just this front. I just remember that. I remember, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a shop from se- from three for seven years, three till 11, four till 11-ish. And, um, and my brother was seven years older than me and it was a seven-day-a-week shop, 7 a.m. till probably 7 or 8 p.m. So mum and dad were really busy and – Awesome little town, like awesome little town, people all around. But also I just, when I think of, when I visualize that place, it, I was very lonely. Like I, I was, you know, my brother was a lot older than me. I had friends around town, but I, in that home environment, people, life was busy for my parents. And I think because of that, I just didn't, I didn't take problems to them. And I just, then I just learned to not validate my own feelings about things. So you felt like you didn't have someone that you can work those feelings out with who cared because people were always very busy, too yeah. busy for you. Yeah. And I think, and I think that then I played on the, everyone loves the, the fun person. So I became the, the fun, you know, confident, you know, whatever. Loud, who, who do people want me to be little, in order yeah. to be yeah, look accepted how fucking happy and they I am. Yeah, they look, won't hurt me. Yeah. yeah. Look how happy I am. Oh yeah, so happy. Um, and I believed it. No, it was but it was a happy childhood that I made that sound really miserable. Like it was it didn't feel like that. But when I reflect back at it now, I see the you you look at the environment you grow up in, and it doesn't have to be bad to have had an effect that can leave can leave it challenging for you later on in life. Yeah, this is totally this is totally tangential, but that's what we do. That's what we do. <laughs> so I remember my parents they had a candy shop in Bay Ridge. It was part of Bay Ridge that was quite violent. Like not Bay Ridge as a whole. Bay Ridge is a great area, but this part of Bay Ridge kind of by a place called Sunset Park and there was a lot of drugs, a lot of drugs, a lot of drinking, a lot of despair. It was just crazy stuff. Like there would be a completely naked woman on the payphone, just hanging oh. out. Jeez. Yeah, and people people would try to bring her like a jacket, and she'd like punch him in the face. And 
<laughs> I would be sitting, I would be sitting in the, um, in the shop and it was either extremely hot, unbearably hot to this day. I cannot deal with heat or it would be bitterly cold, which, Ugh. you know, I, I didn't seem to mind as much. And somebody would walk by the shop and start kicking all the stuff outside the shop and wrecking it. And my stepfather would go out and just beat them like to a pulp mm. where they couldn't move. And he would just come back in. <laughs> and I thought this was like normal. And, and I would have to wake up for 4, 4 a.m. We would wake up to get there and, and rush over to get the shop open by about five. And I just remember for lollies. Candy. It, it, it was well, people would come in and they would just buy cigarettes. So people were going to work. So cigarettes candy and were, cigarettes. Were, candy candy. And yeah. cigarettes. <laughs> well, they had well, we had we had we had a few things. It's one of those it was, it's like what we call them in Brooklyn. It was a bodega. Is, is the uh, sounds like a similar kind of shop. We were like a, a takeaway in a news agency and, and yeah, so you had all this stuff in, in newspapers, so you didn't want to miss the morning crew. So you were open at five. And I remember sometimes when they didn't want to deal with me, they would go across to Mike's and Mike was this guy who owned a, a coffee shop. And when I was 10 years old for me to cope with, cause I hated being around them. Like I, I would get slapped every 10 minutes mm-hmm. and, and just beaten in the back of the shop for nothing. Like if the, if the paper didn't show up when it was supposed to, like, how's that my fault? Like go beat the wholesalers. <laughs> But when I would sit across the street and I wasn't allowed to put sugar in the coffee, but Mike would put sugar in my coffee. I was 10 years old drinking coffees. So I'd have milk (laughs) and sugar and he must've put a lot because the coffee would taste so good. And I would, I would milk it. No pun intended. I would sit in that coffee shop and sit my coffee for as long as I could to just get away from them. And I felt so good. Like the world would stop to this day. If I'm feeling down or if I'm anxious, Go to a coffee shop. I'll do my work in a coffee shop. I'll just get out yeah. of my home office. And if I'm in a coffee shop, sipping a coffee, no sugar in it now. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't know better when Such I was a kid. grown up now. Yeah, now, now I'm mature. So like sometimes I drink it black, just like I'm hardcore. <laughs> and it, it just soothes me emotionally. Oh, yeah. I have that imprint from when I was a child that coffee makes it. And every once in a while, oh, we would get in so much trouble. He would sneak me a donut. Oh, like if they were really odd, because we could see from across the street and he would go here, here, these, I can't sell these. These are from last night, but they're still good. Like have one. And I was like, Oh, this is the best. <laughs> I don't know what that has to do with like adapting protective strong suits. But for me, <laughs> Like if I, like at times when I've hit just like you have your business and it's just like whatever, whatever's going really, whenever things are are, are going well or not well, like coffee always soothes me. Yeah. Lollies always soothe me. Soothe me. I think it's because of the lot. It's funny because I grew up in that lolly shop. So I ate lollies a lot. Lolly, lolly, lolly. And mum would bribe me to bed by going, I'll bring you a surprise. And that meant lollies, which right. So it was weird. Not only did I just have access to these lollies whenever I wanted, so you didn't have to bribe me with them. I'd just go out and flog them from the bloody shop. It was, you know, like they were there. But I look back and see how interesting it was that also they were a tool to – but that gave me connection too. It gave me a thing like people would bribe me with lollies or people would give me – so there was this human connection association I think that came with lollies and sugar and I see that like if I'm – I think when I feel lonely or I am alone more, I'm more inclined to go and bloody smash sugar lollies. Yeah. You, you have, I mean, at, as an adult, chocolate. you probably don't have a physiological attachment to it anymore, <laughs> but there's this emotional psychological attachment. It, it's all, it's, it's all the more if for me, if I am doing something naughty, I shouldn't be doing like sneaking something. <laughs> So if I do happen to have a treat, like I have chocolate in the fridge, I will break off a piece and I'll go somewhere in the house or, or, I'll, or I'll go upstairs. And the thing, the thing Sit is... Sit in the dark somewhere. 
Amy, Amy couldn't give a toss if she caught me. Well, well, sometimes she yells at me. Are you having more chocolate? I don't want to hear it. If your stomach hurts later. But, but, but so many other times she couldn't care less. It's just the fact that I pretend she could and I have to go off and sneak it and do something. Okay. So the listeners are probably like, this guy's really fucked up. And you're probably right. But there is something about, oh, I, I get to sneak. I have such a cute story. So I used to, when I was in London, I, there was this couple and really good friends with them. And I used to stay with them when I could, because they're, they're so much fun. And talk about, there was this whole culture of sneaking stuff. Like every once in a while, um, she, the, the wife, I'm not going to mention their names, would break out a cigarette and go outside. And then you know, her husband would come home. Are you smoking? And it's all very playful. Obviously, he didn't want her smoking, but you know, <laughs> it, 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 there was a playful element. And so everybody was sneaking stuff in that house. I, I miss these people dearly. And they had, they had two kids. God, I'm not going to mention their names either. But the younger one was just so, just like really sweet and innocent. And Somehow he he saw where the chocolate was stashed in the house and he woke up in the middle of the night. I don't even know if he ever went to bed. I think he stayed up for the chocolate. <laughs> and he somehow climbed up and got into the chocolate. The problem was his older brother was awake and he comes back in and he goes to bed and he plays it off. First thing the next morning, the older brother rats him out, said, you know, we'll call him Benny, you know. Uh, ben, Benny was sneaking chocolate and they would look at him and go, is that true? And he would look up with the most sincere face and shake his head. No, but he's got chocolate all <laughs> over his face. And it's just, and, and now, and, and his parents are like, we've got, we've got to like punish him. We've got to at least chastise him. But inwardly, they're like, oh, my, this is so cute. Oh. But I, I, can't, I can't encourage this behavior, but it's absolutely a, this kid was just like so adorable. I'm like, OK, now we have to pretend that we're really upset about this. And so it, it was just these cute, these cute things that we get caught doing. I don't I don't know. But that's that's almost it's almost like things I had to do to entertain myself because I didn't get a lot of play and interaction with a lot of kids because I was kind of like an outcast. So when I was a kid, like if I played, I, I played with myself and like not played with myself. <laughs> but I, like I played oh. by myself. Enough. Um, enough. And I said, so I don't hear yeah, anymore. I'm just digging myself into a bigger <laughs> hole, but I just didn't. Yeah. I, I, I didn't have that interaction. So I had to come up with things that would entertain me. And some of those things were innocent, like, okay, I'm going to sneak something that I know I shouldn't be sneaking. Um, other things were more like creative writing, which was kind of weird for a young kid that age, but I would just write stuff down because yeah. that would help me. But it, it was an outlet for expression and creativity. And then every so often I would go out and play with other kids, but in my neighborhood with those kids, a lot of times they, it, they were up to no good. So that was a totally bad scenario in and of itself. But it's it, it, it's it's kind of like you need outlets of expression. And when you can express and connect that in the world to other kids that have a different perspective. So I had somebody on the podcast last night and they said, iron sharpens iron. And it's like, what happens when two perspectives come and collide? Mm -hmm. Well, that constant collision sharpens the both of you. And again, that goes back to the power of play. Yeah, it was interesting you said at the start, because like, I was about to say, oh, do you think kids that got less interactive play as kids maintain, like seek playfulness later on in life? But you made the reference before about um, criminals being having no play or limited play as kids. And I was thinking about this bloody cat of mine. When I first got this kitten, she was... She was, she was found at, she, I think, maybe five or six weeks old. She was found as a stray in New South Wales and come down and I picked her up and I got her, I, I think I took her home at around eight weeks. And I did all my Googling about kittens because I was like, oh, shit. And they're like, you know, <laughs> do you get two kittens or one kitten? It's like two kittens is better than one because if you don't have two kittens, if they're taken from their mother too early, 
and they don't play and they don't bite and they do, there's all of these behavioural things that come from that play and that because cats are you know like she you know she likes they're to ma- play they're mammals play. like play yeah. is is innate in all mammals yeah so it was really interesting to go oh there's I've got to take this into account with this kitten because mostly you you know she should still be with this mother and she should still be with other cats that bite each other and so that they learn what sort of interaction is okay and now that she doesn't have that I have to be on top of knowing what this play means to her and how my reactions shape what she will do moving forward when she plays. Mm. Play is one of the most powerful shit. Because think about this from an evolutionary perspective for survival and adaptation. Play is so distracting. Like when you're completely playing, oh. if you remember, even as a kid or an, a, as an adult, you're completely immersed in it. Yeah. So you're not vigilant about things like predators, for example, and it takes a lot of your time. So why would such a large amount of time that puts you in a potentially precarious position be so inborn in mammals, if it wasn't critical to our development. So here's an interesting story out of Stuart Brown's book. There were these researchers and they had, they were out in the Arctic somewhere and they had a group of huskies. And there was this one husky that was with them. And the husky found itself face to face at some point with a starving polar bear. You could also Google Stuart Brown, starving polar bear and husky. And you can see the images of this. And the polar bear is coming for lunch, sees that husky, and it's like, finally, food. This thing is extremely hungry, hadn't eaten in a very long time. The researchers are freaking out because they're about to see their dog get eaten, and they don't know what to do. The dog, for whatever reason, instinctively gets real low, sticks its butt all the way up in the air, which is a play posture, which completely throws off the polar bear polar bear does the same exact thing they both start engaging each other in roughhousing and play oh, at some point you, did you pull them up yeah they're so beautiful one of those photos shows the polar bear on its back in a submissive position oh. with the with the husky on top and then what's interesting is when they were done playing Polar bear just got up and pissed off. Next day, polar bear comes back, finds the husky, engages in play again, pisses off. Oh, so when it came when it came to a starving polar bear's choice between food and play, the polar bear chose play. Oh, how beautiful! I love that story. I just want to keep looking at the photos now. No, there may like go. If you're listening, go to Google again, not if you're driving or if you're in a place where you're going to, I don't want to cause mass accidents. Yeah, we need but our listeners. St- we, we, I mean, pff, without our listeners, who are we? We're just two Muppets with a microphone, basically. I mean, we're, we're two Muppets with a microphone anyway, but we do. Yeah, the only reason why that's worth anything is because the listeners say, that it is so thank you listeners and here's a question for you what is play for you you know so um i know simon Sinek wrote the infinite game and that's based a lot on um i i think it, it's um john creasy wrote the book finite and infinite games years earlier and you know you're talking about play with the intention of winning within structured rules, and then you're talking about unbound play, which is play for the sake of play. How does play show up for you? What what type of play do you feel most free, most inspired, most alive? And how often do you give yourself to engage in it? Mm-hmm. That's a very important question, and a lot of a lot of the times the answer is I don't have time for play. And when you feel like you're under time pressure, you don't have time not to engage in play because play is not frivolous. I, I forgot. Wow, I, I'm trying to think of the exact reference for this study, but they took groups of CEOs and found that CEOs that engaged in video games for 
just the sake of fun and escapism were far more effective than CEOs who didn't. It's not just that they, they can decompress and relax a little bit, which is important. It's all the benefits cognitively to focus attention, creativity, abstract thinking, all of that, that a lot of video games do can cultivate. I don't want to say do, but they can cultivate. So there's all these benefits around that. And if you were to be, it's, it's kind of like Stephen Covey's example of sharpening the saw bunch of lumberjacks they're out working constantly and it's like oh they see one person taking a break every hour or so to sharpen the saw and they're all laughing oh this idiot we're, we're, we're working and this person doesn't have time and they stop to sharpen the saw but who's going to cut down more trees at the end of the day mm-hmm. the person who takes the time to stop take a break oh. sharpen your saw you're going to be far more effective play is sharpening the saw and that's part of my problem when we moralize and villainize behaviors that over two hundred thousand years of evolution have served us very well napping in the afternoon might be a luxury that's not for everyone but it's definitely not laziness and it can consolidate memories and learning Mm -hmm. that you engaged in earlier in the day so you can retain more of that so you can utilize it. What's the purpose of learning something if you're not enhancing memory and recall, right? Mm. Do you know before half half random topic, do you know before the light bulb humans slept an average of 11 hours per night and now we sleep an average of seven? Well, yeah, maybe those people were lazy. We have improved as a species <laughs> after all. But also, what about, I don't know if he told this story when he was on your show, but he did on mine, Captain Charlie Plum. Did he tell you about the the wonderful birthday parties that they would have in? Yes. Yes, where he's like, yeah. they, were, they, they would wheel in this enormous cake and this beautiful naked woman would burst out of the cake and she would sing us happy birthdays. Yeah. Like this was all they imagined play. They they were so incredibly resourceful. Yeah, well, the POWs didn't have like cake and naked women and provided for them in the camp. <laughs> <laughs> but like, what a power! Like, what wisdom to have to have engaged in that under that pressure. Um, you know, it was that that's the mindset? That's the stuff that's that saved them. That saved their minds. That kept them sharp and healthy and emotionally regulated. Commander Gerald Gerald Coffey, he was in the same situation as being a prisoner of war, and he would practice with excruciating attention to detail various golf games that he wanted to play when he got back to the States, when he regained his freedom. And he would spend hours and several hours every day, and not only did that keep him focused on on a task that distracted him from his level of despair but he was able to engage his mind in highly stimulating ways so he wouldn't experience that mental deterioration and when he got back to the united states he took up golf and he was extraordinary at it and reportedly a reporter reportedly a reporter uh, <laughs> asked him said how you, you basically were away you were a prisoner for all these years and you just came back and you had such an amazing game. Is this a case of beginner's luck? And he, and, and he just reminded the reporter, he's you know, beginner's luck. He said, I, I haven't had such a good game in all of my years of practice because he was practicing in his mind. And what, what we do know, I mean, th- this comes out of self-help, but if you uh, take a look at Norman Dodge, in his book, The Brain That Changes Itself, he took a look at a study of people who's practicing piano scores. Mm, yeah. And they had th- yeah, they had three groups of people. One was the control group. They did like bugger all and got no change. No surprise there. Great. Mm-hmm. And then they had people who are actually practicing two hours a day, five days a week, piano scores on a piano. And then you had people who were practicing the same scores but they weren't literally utilizing a piano. It was in their mind's eye and they had very similar changes in their brain as the people who are actually practicing on a piano. So mental rehearsal and play, it it just, nobody says that for you to get better at something, 
it's got to, it's got to be agonizing. It's got to be painful. It's got, it's got to be a little bit frustrating. Frustration absolutely Mm -hmm. helps. It's got to be challenging. It requires effort. It requires going back and correcting missteps. All that's required, but nobody says that that cannot be enjoyable if it's something that's meaningful to you. And a lot of times when we're focusing single-mindedly and something's challenging and frustrating, it is enjoyable. Mm. You know, like, like people write all the time about the gym. It's like, you know, I get up no matter what, whether I like it or not. I feel like, yes, you do that sometimes, but let's be freaking honest. If you've been working out for 20 years, you do get intense enjoyment from it. You're not doing it because you know you need to do it and you don't want to do it. And it's like there are ways to make what you're doing more fun and more engaging and to have those activities pull you toward them rather than you have to push yourself constantly towards engagement. And when you're fascinated and curious and enjoying something, do you really think you're going to be more effective or less effective? Like, what do you think is the neurobiology behind that? You don't have to be a neuroscientist to answer that question. You just happen to be have to be someone who's been alive for more than 26 minutes to answer, like, which which one of those scenarios is more true? Mm. Mm. Like boxing, when I've when I've always talked about boxing, that is that's it's the play element that I love the most. It's the well, a it's the it's the only thing that steals my focus away from everything else. It's the only thing that stops everything else in my mind for that moment because you don't, there's no bandwidth for anything else. But my favourite mm-hmm. part is the afterwards, the reflection and the, and it was like the cogs are turning in my mind and I'm. it's almost like I'm, I'm pattern-seeking. I'm pattern-seeking what I've just experienced with, the rest of my life, what do I do in there that happens somewhere else? It's like a puzzle. And I love that. I like it's for me, it's the most curious and fun part, like the drive home, especially Mm -hmm. when as annoying as it is that my, that my favorite coach is now 45 minutes away from where I live. The drive after training is the best because I'm kind of half occupied with the drive I'm filled mm-hmm. with endorphins and my mind is just processing and, and having a whole bunch of fun with, shit, what did we just go through? Like what just happened? Geez, that was hard. Why did I do that? How come mm-hmm. I couldn't do this all of a sudden? Oh, that reminds me of this scenario in life. Oh, I do that. Oh, that's a confidence thing or, oh, that's a, that's a pattern. I love that. It's one of the many reasons why sport is so critical for people, some form of sport. You can say most forms of fighting are highly technical and strategic. There's a lot of cognition. There's a big mental game. There's a lot of intelligence or a version of intelligence wrapped up in that. I mean, not ballroom brawls, but that's not technically a sport, is it? (laughs) That's that's just a group of people with social issues. (laughs) What, for ballroom brawling? Yeah. Isn't that a sport? It, oh. Is it, is that actually a thing? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, in Melbourne, there's got to be a few pubs where it's it's definitely a sport. Probably is in Tassie. I remember a couple of years ago seeing on Facebook this security footage of this ridiculous brawl that broke out in – it was a place I used to go for dinner. Well, it was called the Lighthouse in Olveston. Shout out to my Tassie people. Um, the Lighthouse and, and this re- – ridiculous, horrific, violent brawl broke out in the middle of the bar. People were, it was like, actually, I watched it a few times. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is actually terrifying. People were getting thrown outside. Chairs were getting thrown at people, like dangerous, dangerous stuff. That really inspired me to want to sign up, Bobby. <laughs> it's my hometown. I was like, is this my hometown sport? <laughs> that would make for a very interesting date night. <laughs> That's how we, that's how we um, do it down in Tassie. <laughs> yeah. Brooklyn was not much different. I mean, looking back at that, though, it's like, what a bunch of knobs. <laughs> so I guess, when, I guess when you're young and your hormones are raging and, you know, you just sometimes you come from an, from an area where you, you grow to think that's normal. Like, I just thought everybody fights all the time. That's just a normal part of life. That's that's how you interact and and settle things as as young and 
unfortunately, older adults. Mm. And then I got out into the rest of the world. And I was like, wow, like people are normal. Like this shit doesn't happen. Like nobody, nobody's, <laughs> nobody's beating the shit out of each other in the middle of the gym floor. Like over <laughs> o- over a machine or, or who didn't nobody's knocking out the trainer because they asked them to put their weights away or or in an office in an all out death brawl with the Snapple guy over iced tea deliveries. The it's Snapple, just what Snapple? Oh, Snapple makes you forget where you are. It was this drink that was in the US. It was really popular for I don't even know if they still make it, but it was really weird. Here's a weird story. I was with my friend, Mike, Mike Grasso, and we were on a bus and there was this one advert about country grape Snapple and it was this flavor of Snapple and it was really good, probably horrible for you. And we're drinking this. We're we're, we're kids, we're teenagers and we're on a bus and, and the advert was, it makes you forget where you are. So we were going in one direction on the bus. You, you ever see, um, you ever see Saturday night fever with John Travolta? Yes. Right. So the Bee Gees, they sing that song, Staying Alive. Yes. So, yeah, it was part of the soundtrack for that film. Early part of the film, if you're listening to this, if you've ever seen the film, he's walking down the street to the Bee Gees and he's just like bopping around. He's got you know a walk with attitude and there's a bunch of shops. There's a train above them. That's 86th Street in Bensonhurst. So we were on the bus there and we're heading we're heading in one direction towards Stillwell Avenue in the movie. If you've seen the movie, I keep referencing the movie. Well, I got to see this movie or maybe not. There was, <laughs> there was a burger place. It was called white castle and we're, we're almost there. And I remember, and I didn't drink. There was no drinking, no drugs aside from the country grape Snapple. And we were drinking it and I bent down. We both bent down to like tie our shoes because I saw him do it. I was like, oh yeah, my shoes were untied. And in the span of three seconds, we looked up and we were miles from where we just were in the opposite direction, heading towards Bay Ridge, What? which I talked about earlier. And it's like going from Stillwell in that traffic in the opposite, that, that would have taken an hour for the bus to turn around at least, and, and be that far in the opposite direction. And we didn't know how that happened because we were clearly at Stillwell Avenue because we were like, okay, because so, I was counting in my head. I was like, okay. So there was a place called Marlboro, the projects. And then after, after that, you would hit McDonald Avenue and then we were home. We, we were home in, in relatively short amounts of time. And then we were just not where we were at all. And I was like, one of the, we, even to today, like we're still friends on Facebook. If I brought that up, Hey Mike, remember like country grace? Like, oh my God, the B, yeah, we were on the B1. We got lost. So I don't even know where this is going, but that's like one of those speak, spooky, unexplained stories from your childhood. Like, you know, those stories like on YouTube, I listen to them sometimes. If, if I'm working out in an intensity where I'm not going to listen to a podcast that has a lot of information yeah. because there's just no way I'm going to retain the important stuff. Uh, I'm definitely not going to listen to an Andrew Uberman podcast right now because I want to be present for that. So I, uh-huh. I, I can listen to what he's saying. Um, I, I'll, I'll go to YouTube sometimes and I pull up these strange tales, strange stories about the multiverse, multiple dimensions. And it's stories like that. Like I was in one place and then a second later, I was in a place that I couldn't have gotten to. So who knows? Maybe I jump from one dimension to the next. I shouldn't even be. This isn't even my universe. That's why I'm so weird and quirky. Where I come from, everybody's like this. And this is just normal. <laughs> I did think halfway through that story, I, I was like, how did Bobby get started talking on this? And what point was he making? <laughs> I I'm totally you forgot. Did somebody write in and tell me what point I was making. And I thought it was an interesting story to share because when I hear these stories on podcasts, I'm into them. And like I, I have a really weird story. Maybe the listeners or three of the listeners we have might be really interested in this. The rest of them have completely hey, logged off right now. Have we got three left still? Hey, you three, please don't go anywhere. Don't leave us. But I got to the point of Snapple. I started talking about the different flavors. This is why you lost me because then I went and Googled Snapple and then I tried to get back into the story and I was like, oh, shit. I think, oh, shit. What was he talking about this for? (laughs) 
<laughs> and they were talking about play and research and the, the, the significance for mammalian development. And now he's talking about drinking some grape shit on a bus. It's like, okay. Snapple. Weird. Iced tea or juice. Like they couldn't decide what they wanted to make. Snapple. No, they had a bunch of different flavors, Snapple. Right. Oh, we were talking about like fighting with the Snapple guy in the gym <laughs> over deliveries. Yeah, but how, That's what we were talking how, how about. How did that come up with the story no, of getting bloody lost? Because my mind, my brain, which which <laughs> doesn't have which doesn't have neurons and dendrites and axons as much as it has squirrels chatting at each other <laughs> said oh wow snapple okay. my, my brain's gone on an equal tangent i just thought of a bus story because you had a bus in your story didn't you i did i did i did right, the main so thing. i just i just pictured a bus and i remembered being on this bus in i don't know high school year 10 or maybe year 11 and we used to go and catch this bus from turner's beach little beach town where i had the shop um and we'd get on this bus and there were three of my really good mates at the time. There was, I remember Kendall, shout out to Kendall. Kendall was on the bus. Sarah Hardy, super, she was such a super sporty, bloody weapon. And we used to catch the bus, and but we'd catch another a bunch of high school, a different high school would also be getting on the bus. So there were a bunch of people we didn't know. And there was this really, really good looking dude. His name was Damon. Don't know what his last name was. His name was Damon. And we would all be like, oh, that Damon guy, how hot is he? And we, <laughs> I remember we were sitting on the bus one day and Sarah was sitting behind Damon's seat. And like, so she kept leaning over. She was like really creepily open her eyes really wide and she'd lean over because we'd talk about how good he smells and she would close her eyes and put her, put her nose right next to his, like right next to his and be sniffing him and, <laughs> and he turned around and he turned around and she did it and he looked at her and she's there with her eyes closed. She just opens her eyes and her face is right there in front of him and she just, she's just like, oh, and then just this thing was so humiliating for her. Hilarious for us. See, another pointless bus oh story. <laughs> oh man. I have so I have so many weird stories. I, I never had anybody sniff me. Um, I think if I was Sarah, I never would have been able to get on that bus again in my life. I, I would have been like, oh my god, I've no- been caught smelling you. <laughs> I, I don't know what you do in that scenario. I don't know because I, I I typically don't smell people. No, that's that is not true. I sniff my wife all the time. I'll go <laughs> right up to her neck. No, because she has these products. That's she okay. Uses. You're married. You know, it's not some stranger on a bus from a different school. Yeah, it's like legalized sniffing. That's yeah. what marriage is. Yeah. And well, it's probably a little bit more than that, but <laughs> she, she has these products that she uses, and the combination of those products. She smells like either cocoa butter or a coconut. And it's just oh. amazing. Like she'll give me a hug and she smells like cocoa butter and coconut mixed together. And it's just, it's amazing. Smell but other is than that, powerful. Yeah. Smell is powerful. There is this, there is this, and you know, I don't even need to smell it. I remember this lip gloss. This is weird. This is how vivid the mind can be. This weird purple kind of lip gloss I used to have in a tub and it smelt amazing. And if I smelt that now, I don't even need to smell it. Years later if I would smell it, but now I just have to think of it. And I actually get a picture, and this is awkward, it's year 11, it's a particular school school classroom in the school I was in, Don College, and I was wearing this, I had this shirt, this button-up, really cool surf shirt. I thought I was the fucking most shit-hot human on the planet. I was like, look at me and my rip curl, bloody button-up, cool T-shirt. And I had permed hair. <laughs> had my hair permed, so I had long permed hair, but not my fringe. I had a straight fringe uh, and permed hair. It was a fucking disaster. Um, but what I remember, were we thinking and, back so, Yeah, like I, if I smell that smell or think of that lip gloss now, I – I'm taken back. I'm sitting in that room. It's so weird. And no, I can't even remember what happened in that room. Can't remember what class it is. I just, that is the environment that I am literally vividly taken to when I smell that smell. Yeah. I, I believe the, the olfactory senses are the ones that are most strongly connected to memories, mm. which makes sense. Like mm. you have to be able to smell 
noxious odors to say, okay, well, this, this creates a disgust reflex. I need to avoid that. And you need to smell food and remember where was that food? It's kind of critical. Um, I don't know if I'm going to regret saying this on this podcast, when I, <laughs> oh, but I'm no. going to say it anyway. Oh boy. <laughs> so here, here we go. Last week I went, <laughs> last week I went for a hyperbaric oxygen and, <laughs> and an infrared sauna. <laughs> And I was laying in the oxygen tank and I was like, this is the best. And you know when you just, like, I caught, thank God I caught myself, right? But you know when you, your mind goes, hey, you're alone, you can definitely fart right now. <laughs> and then my mind goes right at the, right at the moment it needed to. It went, hey, but also you're sealed in a coffin-sized tank. There's no air getting in or out of here. Don't do it. It's oh it's my. it's not a victimless crime in this scenario, is it? Oh my god! Imagine if I had done that, and then I was also I was like, "Hey, what if I did it?" And then I was stuck with it. But then, what if it stayed stuck in there with me until the guy came to let and me out? And then when out, he opened and then it, he opens it, and he's like, Whoa, "What oh, happened in here? Is she still alive?" <laughs> oh, anyway. Uh, and that, boys and girls, is why she should never fought in a sealed tank. This show is becoming so educational and filled with practical tips for better yeah, well, living. I tell you what, people are going to be really bloody glad that they heard that story. I've saved them. So, you know, wrapping up. <laughs> yes, I've. Well, I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna let that go. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> bottom line from this podcast, if there is a bottom line, is there a point to this anymore? Is how often do you engage in play? Play is not a distraction from, but a driver of high performance, high performance in your work, high performance in interpersonal dynamics and your relationships, high performance in making you feel alive while you're living and inspired and being that the clock is ticking and we don't know exactly when it's going to stop, not to be all morbid on you. What other way to live than living an inspired life as often as possible? How often do you make time for play? For some people, that's exploring ideas in a book. For some people, that's watching videos. For some people, that's doing improv. For other people, it's getting out onto a pitch with a ball and other people. And it, But whatever it is for you, are you making time for it? Because there's a cost for not doing it. And I think there's an extraordinary payoff if you make play a integral part of your life. You make a part of your mindset to where it's not something that you've set aside to do. It becomes part of who you are. What would it be like to be around you if that future version of yourself incorporated that characteristic? I think that's what we've been trying to say in between all the Snapple conversations and farting in tanks, which by the way, those two subjects are more directly related than you might think. So thank you very much. And we will see you next week on Roll With The Bunches and the Self-Help Antidote. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Visit us at theselfhelpantidote.com to share your feedback, insights, and recommendations on what topics you'd like us to explore in the future. 